0: best practices of dealing with ransomware, meeting staffing demands for DevSecOps, and the repercussions of heavy-handed encryption-busting laws. These stories and more, in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Nick Holland. As Norsk Hydro's recent incident graphically illustrates, ransomware isn't going away. And quite honestly, why would it when the vast majority of victims simply pay up? So what can be done about this pernicious and persistent threat? For some insight, here's ISMG's managing editor, Data Breach Today in Europe, Matthew Schwartz, with more.
1: Ransomware continues to pummel businesses large and small. In recent weeks, aluminum giant Norsk Hydro has been struggling to recover from a Locker Goga infection. Another recent ransomware victim was a small medical practice. The doctors at Brookside ENT and Hearing Services, based in Battle Creek, Michigan, said that rather than paying their attacker, they'd simply decided to retire. Brookside's attackers obviously didn't strike pay dirt, but some experts estimate that up to 90% of ransomware victims do pay. With some ransom demands reaching thousands or even millions of dollars, it's no surprise that criminals continue to try their hand at ransomware. John Foker, head of cyber investigations at security firm McAfee, tells me that two forms of ransomware have emerged.
2: Predominantly, we see two forms. So the service model, so catering to the less technical uh, criminals, they're taking a real flight and they're getting stronger and stronger because they're partnering up with other services. And we see a lot of increase in targeted attacks where criminals take a lot more time to reconna- do reconnaissance on their targets and hit them with a far, far higher demands.
1: In recent years, ransomware strains such as TeslaCrypt, Cerber, Crysis, and Locky were among the names being most often seen Crypto-locking systems. So I asked Raj Samani, chief scientist at McAfee, which strains of ransomware are big these days?
3: Define big. I mean, you know, in terms of volume, then Gantt Crab is kind of streets ahead.
1: But some other types of ransomware distinguish themselves because of their inordinately high ransom demands, meaning that some of the criminal actors behind them can get more bang for their buck by hitting fewer people. Simani says Ryuk, or Ryuk, depending on how you want to pronounce it, continues to hit businesses, and attackers are demanding big ransoms. Some researchers had suggested that this particular strain of ransomware was the work of North Korea, but there's growing evidence that's not the
3: case if you look at Ryuk, Ryuk uh, if you look at that form of ransomware, there's actually two distinct types of ransom demands and specific ransom notes as well. And the theory that we actually came back with, because we partnered with a company called Coveware and they do ransomware negotiations, so we were able to access all of the various different chat logs to get an understanding. And like our distinct impression here is we're looking at two groups, and this is more than likely a crime group. Contrary to popular belief.
1: Hmm. Experts say the best defense against ransomware continues to be keeping up-to-date backups and making sure that some of them at least are stored offline. That way, if your system or organization gets hit, the backups won't get crypto-locked together with the primary systems. But what should organizations do if they still get hit by ransomware? Or if they get hit, have the backups, and can't afford to wait to restore? Here's advice from Christopher Ellison, director of intelligence at threat intelligence firm Flashpoint.
4: For me, I'm, I always tell victims to go to nomoransom.org. It's a website where different researchers collaborate to stop ransomware by providing information that would lead to the creation of uh, decryption tools.
1: No More Ransom was launched in 2016 as a public-private project involving Europol, the Dutch high-tech crime police, as well as Kaspersky Lab and McAfee. Since then, the project has grown to encompass 136 partners and has helped bring together millions of ransomware victims with free decoders, most recently including versions of Gancreb ransomware up to 5.1. Of course, just days later, criminals released version 5.2, for which the decryptor unfortunately doesn't work. Free decryptors aren't available for every type of ransomware. For organizations that don't have an easy restoration option, Allison says they should pursue three different steps.
4: If you get victimized by ransomware, I actually have three suggestions. Number one, work with a technical company that would help you, guide you technically on, on how to solve the problem. Second is involve law enforcement because they also have information that will help. Uh, that will help the company, and at the same time, gather enough evidence to actually tie it with other attacks, and might give the company information on how to deal with uh, certain threat actor groups. And also, third one, always involve your legal counsel because some of the uh, information or some of the decisions that they're making during this whole process is not easy and. Everything has to be covered, I would say.
1: Again, however, the best advice against ransomware infections is to make sure you keep your systems up to date, keep your antivirus up to date, and always have backups at the ready. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz.
0: You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for
3: information security news.
0: It's no secret that one of the hottest topics in cybersecurity right now is DevSecOps. But does the industry have the talent needed to bring its potential to fruition? In a recent interview, ISMG's managing editor, Newsdesk, Scott Ferguson, spoke with Mark Carney, Executive Vice President of Cybersecurity Services at CoalFire, about DevSecOps, the skills gap, and whether AI and ML could come to the rescue. Here's Scott.
2: What's the challenge with CISOs are having right now with with DevSecOps? Yeah, I think the the macro challenge is talent in general. Uh, so in talking to CISOs weekly, um, they just really have a they they have a typically a three or four different ways they're trying to to recruit talent and still not having success uh, in a lot of cases. And so the challenge is not only uh, getting knowledgeable security professionals in uh, to, to, to join their team, but also now the talent is shifting uh, to more of a dev, DevSecOps uh, talent base with obviously all uh, folks moving to the cloud. And so uh, software is, is the future. And, and, um, and so uh, having development talent like JSON and, and uh, Puppet and Docker and, 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 and all these other te- uh, cloud technologies, a more software-minded person uh, versus a, somebody that used to manage firewalls um, is, is really going to be obsolete at some point uh, in the near future. One issue I have seen with DevSecOps is making sure security gets a place at the table right away. How do you advise CISOs to make sure that happens? Yeah, I think I think uh, minimum requirements, right? So, and, and also guardrails. So, what are the policies that you're going to sort of uh, imply within or, or uh, adopt within the cloud? You need to have policies and guardrails of, of understanding what are those thresholds and how do you go uh, put policies in uh, in the cloud just like you would you know, on, on prem. I think DevSecOps is one of those things that you've got a lot of a lot of agile development processes that folks need to go understand how to insert. Uh, security within those sprints, uh, which is, a, again, uh, for some CISOs and some uh, organizations, a very very new concept for them. And you talked a little bit about the skills gap. Um, and for a long time we've heard that AI and machine learning and automation was going to fill that gap. Yeah. Is that true? Uh, so I think to some extent. I think, uh, you know, with, with some of these newer technologies, I think we're going to have Um, some efficiencies uh, of of the lack of of talent, but it's not going to solve the problem uh, holistically. So I think it's definitely a combination of having, uh, really, the the workforce, uh, there's a big workforce need still, and it will remain. But also, um, I think we will get some help from from emerging technologies like IA.
0: Finally, encryption is a divisive issue, particularly when it comes to issues of national security. There have been numerous well documented cases around the globe of investigations that have been thwarted by encrypted devices and companies unwilling to divulge the encryption keys, which has in turn led to government led intervention with varying degrees of brute force legislation. It's a tough line to walk for software companies provide the necessary backdoors for data access to authorities or jeopardize trust in the product with what could be perceived to be weak encryption. One of the most recent countries to enact encryption busting legislation is Australia, which enacted the Assistance and Access Law back in December. However, actions have consequences, and some companies are opting to put their data centers outside of the country as a result.
3: Here's ISMG's Managing Editor, Security and Technology, Jeremy Kirk, with more. The fight over Australia's encryption-busting laws is far from over, and the economic consequences could hurt the country's budding cybersecurity industry. Microsoft's Chief Legal Officer Brad Smith says Australia's new encryption-busting laws are causing companies and governments to look elsewhere to store their data. The fear is that the Australian government may use broad and opaque legal powers to force technology companies to undermine their own encryption. Smith says, When I travel to other countries, I hear companies and governments say, We are no longer comfortable putting our data in Australia. So they are asking us to build more data centers in other countries. Smith's comments reinforce the views of other technology companies that have said the laws undermine trust in their local operations. According to the ABC, Smith says Microsoft has not yet changed its operations in Australia, but the laws are causing concern. Known as the Assistance and Access Bill 2018, the laws give the Australian government new tools to pressure technology companies. That includes forcing companies to alter their products to remove encryption. But the laws have been criticized. Experts have argued it is impossible to weaken software for specific people, but not put at risk all users of the software. The Australian government has pledged to review the laws, which were passed in a hurry in December. But the pass-it-first, fix-it-later approach to such a sensitive topic with economic and security consequences didn't sit well with many. Two reviews are underway, which may result in ideas that will assure more transparency and oversight. In the meantime, companies have expressed concern that their employees could be targeted by national security orders to undermine their software. Those who disclose orders could face criminal penalties, making whistleblowing about potential abuse risky. Microsoft isn't the only big-name concerned. Apple, Cisco, Facebook, and Google also weighed into the debate as the legislation was under development. It comes as Australia continues to nurture a homegrown cybersecurity, Security industry, which is part of a national cybersecurity strategy launched in 2016, but that may not work out if Australia is viewed as a security risk. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. That's it for this week's ISMG
0: Security Report. The music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Nick Holland.